0: Hello and welcome back to the second episode of Gallo Vault Sessions, a new podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. In this podcast, we chat with artists, label execs, radio veterans and thinkers as we explore the backstories and overlooked tapes from the Gallo Music Vault and reflect on the ways music shapes culture and how our culture has been shaped by music. In our last episode, we heard from Rob Allingham, Gallo's resident historian and archivist in the Gallo vault. In the early
1: 1960s, the so-called Bantu radio system was established. It was these, uh, you know, ethnically exclusive radio stations. So, you know, you had a Zulu service and you had a Kosa service. The radio stations were instructed to only play material in that particular Language and the record companies stepped up to fill the gap there. For the next hour, we
0: will explore this more deeply music's role in the re tribalization project of the apartheid regime through the South African Broadcasting Corporation's Radio Bantu, Gallo's African music imprints, the impact this had on local conceptions of language, as well as what was deemed African music. We will also meet some new voices musician Sipo Hotsticks Mabuse and radio veteran Shadow Twala. But before we start our story, we have a quick note from our producer. It is important to note that much of the contemporary language of the recording industry continues to be influenced by South Africa's apartheid racial classifications and the South African Broadcasting Corporation's policies under the apartheid regime. We are aware that some of the language used by the guests in this series is outdated, and in some cases, pejorative, and we see it as our duty to critically unpack these nuanced connections so that we can imagine new language for the recording industry on the continent. Our story starts before the formation of SABC's comprehensive Radio Bantu service in the 1960s. Radio broadcasting in South Africa began in 1923, with various services licensed to the privately owned African Broadcasting Company, which subsequently got sold to the then British colonial state and became the South African Broadcasting Corporation, the SABC, in 1936, and was modeled largely after the BBC. At this time, a British self-proclaimed ethnomusicologist by the name of Hugh Tracy was brought on to develop the so-called Bandhu Radio Service in his capacity as the director of the Natal studio of the SABC. Following the SABC's mandate, Tracy facilitated the recording, research and archiving of traditional music in the region and scheduled the music for the so-called native broadcasts using his field
1: recordings. Hugh Hugh Tracy, he's born in in the UK. He comes to Africa in the mid 1920s. His brother had a tobacco farm in what was then, uh, you know, southern Rhodesia, today's Zimbabwe, and gets totally fascinated by the indigenous music that. You know, presumably, I'm sure it was the first the first time he heard African music would have been the people that were working on his brother's tobacco farm. And in 1930, when Columbia Graphophone sent a field unit to make recordings in South Africa... He brought a group of musicians playing totally indigenous music. He brought them down, and they actually recorded in Johannesburg in 1930. Those were the first recordings made by by Zimbabweans. And then when the SABC was set up, they had an English service and an Afrikaans service, but they decided also to set up a Zulu service. And somehow... Hugh Tracy ended up getting the job of running the Zulu service. This was now based in Durban. Presented by journalist K.E. Masinga,
0: this early Zulu-language wireless radio service was originally broadcast on the Afrikaans and English radio stations. It would inform listeners about the unfolding World War and then end with a record of so-called traditional black music. At its inception, it was three minutes in length, and by the height of the Second World War, the service had been extended to 30 minutes and to languages other than Isizulu. According to scholar Togozanim Lhambi, this development in native language broadcasts grew out of a colonial anxiety and desire to control mounting discontent among black populations over their role in the war. It is said that at the time, compounds and townships had become the nurseries of anti-British and anti-government propaganda. Black radio allowed the government an opportunity to obtain control over the information and culture disseminated to its black population. Tracy's role in recording so called tribal and traditional music aided not only the colonial agenda, but it actively shaped what constituted authenticity for first the SABC and later the South African population across races.
1: Hugh Tracy was a preservationist out of a A genuine concern that westernization was going to forever alter these varied indigenous styles throughout Africa. As far as Hugh's South African recordings, he basically was not interested in, in urban music development. For sure.
0: In the 50s, Tracy presented a paper entitled The State of Folk Music in Africa to the International Folk Music Council as a proposal for a preservation project in which he describes African music as naturally predetermined along tribal lines and laments that the urbanization of black folks was supposedly having a detrimental effect on their music, assuming new forms and resulting in strange things happening to their rhythm. He viewed it as the responsibility of white folk to bring the natives back to their natural position and keep them separate from Western influence. Now we have a Kipsigi love song. Many English words have lately crept into their language, and so
2: this whistling young man, Chirondet Arab Ngasura, starts off his serenade with the words "Hello my darling, the nearest he can get to Hello, my darling. He calls his girl his little calf, A term of great endearment among these cattle
3: loving people.
0: This colonial legacy of the SABC and the presence of Hugh Tracy, an ethnomusicologist with preservationist leanings, has largely affected the way we have come to understand and consume African music in South Africa. Subsequent to his setting up the Zulu service at the SABC, Hugh Tracy was hired by Eric Gallo.
4: In
1: 1946, they brought Tracy in. I think the idea was that they wanted to supplement the talents of Griffiths Mutsieloa, the original chap that Eric hired in 1930 to start creating an African catalogue for Gallo.
0: Keeping in mind that Griffiths at the time was mainly producing and recording black urban music, Quella and the likes.
1: They set up a separate division in Gallo called African Music Research and Tracy convinced Eric Gallo that a possible opening for the African market would be if they went and recorded music from all over the subcontinent and into East Africa, that they would then sell to uh, workers in the mining compounds. As a matter of fact, the idea was that maybe the mining compounds might set up their own kind of PA systems to to play this music that they were going to, that they were going to record and to sort of soothe the natives, you know. I mean, I'm not just speaking off the top of my head. I actually have memos to this effect between Tracy and Gallo. This was going to be a great sort of thing to, like, you know, keep the boys happy in their concrete shelves, you know. And on that basis, Gallo were the first people to actually import a tape recording mastering machine which was mounted in the back of a Land Rover with a huge battery pack. And Hugh went out recording indigenous music as far north on the east side as Uganda and as far north on the west side of Africa as Katanga, the Copper Belt. And this was totally funded by Gallo. Hugh himself was a preservationist. But you know his mission, as directed by the company, was not only to find indigenous music, but you know Western syncretic stuff as well. So, for example, they had a massive, massive hit with the song "Skokie On," originally recorded as by the African dance band of the Cold Storage Commission of Southern Rhodesia. It was how the records originally came out, and then when they successfully exported it. To America, they changed the name to the Bulawayo Sweet Rhythms Band.
0: Skokian became a tzabatzaba jazz standard, covered dozens of times by artists around the world, from Trinidad, the U.S. and Finland, to Cuba, Germany and Russia. Let's give it a listen. That was Skokian by Cuba's Perez Prado, followed by the original recording by Buluwayo's
1: Sweet Rhythm Band. So Gallo got a good commercial return on that, and then there was also, for example, Jean Bosco Mwenda in Katanga in the the Congo as well. Those Bosco Mwenda records also sold very well. It must be said, I mean, there's no doubt about the fact that Hugh had a profound admiration. For uh, Bosco Mwenda. it would be unfair to characterize Hugh as some sort of embittered preservationist who's instructing the natives that they mustn't listen to these you know terrible Western influences and ruin their music but you know he was definitely very very concerned about preservation.
0: That was John Bosco Mwenda. While Tracy's contribution to music archiving efforts should be commended, after all, he made the iconic recordings of Royal Zulu praise singer Princess Magogo Kadinu Zulu, these efforts must also be placed within the context of separate development under British rule and what would become the re-tribalization project of apartheid. His reluctance to record the music productions of urbanized black South African culture that offered a challenge to the re-tribalization efforts of the apartheid government Complicated his legacy. In the mid 50s, Tracy left Gallo to start the International Library of African Music at Rhodes University in what is now called Makanda. Ten years after their rise to power, the apartheid government established the separate development policy, which solidified the discourse into state regulated policy. And two years later, we saw the establishment of a comprehensive black radio service in 1960 with Radio Bantu a division within the SABC which ran a number of stations each broadcasting in different indigenous languages. SABC policy articulated a goal to, quote-unquote, bring the voices and music of various areas into the homes of the urban Bantu with the intent of heightening the listener's pride in his own culture. The language of the SABC echoed the goals of Tracy's own research. Ex
3: Gallo MD Antostella, Ethnic radio was completely 100% brought on by the apartheid regime that is known as the South African Broadcasting Corporation. It, it was a complete apartheid mindset. Let's just segregate people per vernacular, per tribe, per per whatever. So all of these vernacular stations were created, not only because people could speak the language, but because it was just That's how South Africa was segregated. And so the government understood the people.
1: As a matter of fact, the commissioning of the Bantu radio system was basically an idea of the Bruderbond. That is an absolute fact.
0: It was through the ideology of separate development that the SABC introduced separate radio stations broadcasting regionally for the various ethnic groups. Established in 1958, separate development was a policy instituted by the apartheid government which propagated that black people lived in various native tribes before Europeans arrived, each tribe having its own unique culture and language, and that geographical boundaries should be constructed in order to retain and often reinvent this system and maintain the view that black workers were only temporary city dwellers and should stay true to the so-called pure tribal music of their official rural homelands. At the time, most of the senior management of the SABC were members of the Broerebont, a secret exclusively Afrikaner Calvinist brotherhood dedicated to Afrikaner supremacy, occupying every position of influence in the country across private and public institutions. The Broerebont became the unofficial think tank for the apartheid government and its chief propaganda machine, facilitating the effort of 3 million white Afrikaners to repress the country's 30 million black folk. For an in-depth view on this, look out for episode three of the Gallo Vault Sessions podcast.
1: The reason the Brutabon created this system, it was just part of the the master plan about how, you know, they were going to build up all this tribal ethnic identity with the idea that basically they were going to divide the country and all these people were going to leave the cities and go to these allegedly independent Bantu stands. It was specifically directed as part of the greater divide and rule plan to, to build up ethnic conscience, which hopefully was then going to be useful in fomenting, you know, ethnic group versus ethnic group conflict. You could almost say that it was evil, (laughs) but it did have this marvelous side effect that it created a market for the record companies to record these quote-unquote ethnic musicians to supply music to these radio stations. And I mean, there was a lot of absolutely fantastic music that came out of it. And uh, dare I say also, extremely distinctively African music as well.
0: The first national survey by the SABC in 1962 confirmed the remarkable circulation of music during this period where 50% of the black population had access to radio. This percentage had risen to 97.7% by 1974. In response to this, Gallo Music continued to build up its African music catalogue through the establishment of independent imprints to feed directly into the Radio Bantu system. A great example of this is the Mabutela music label. Gallo Music's royalty manager, Bra Mike Swaratle.
5: Mavutela was started by a gentleman called uh, Rupert Popape, who was in partnership with Gallo. Mavutela was mostly recording, let's say, Mbaganga, Zulu tradition, Tona tradition, and all that, you know, all this kind of uh, local uh, content, you know. Uh, Black local music was separated from other chain of music like uh, white South African or, or international.
3: It isolated the listeners, right? They are the people that got it the worst. but in the second breath, it's also what broke the music if you think of Radio Zulu at the time or Kosi FM and nothing's changed obviously the music used to be split up by genre as well we would know if it was maskandi the focus would be of Kosi FM or Radio Zulu at the time you know if it was i mean from the northern region you would go to the northern radio stations depending on what album and Gallo was really fortunate because at the time we were releasing quite a mixed bag of of genres, whether it was, I mean, Causa, whether it was Zulu, whether it was Venda, whether it was Ladysmith Black Mombasa, whether it was Lucky Dube, we knew, we had strategically knew what radio stations we would focus on. And we managed to make it work in within that environment. Yeah, yeah the SABC was just another whole story. And they dominated. There was no independent radio at the time. Mm. There was no community radio at the time.
0: One of the most standout genres to have proliferated through the Radio Bantu system was maskandi, a style of narrative guitar-based music sung in Isi Zulu. The most influential maskandi artist in South African history was Gallo-signed John Bengu, popularly known as Puzu Shugela, the first rural recording artist to come to prominence in the 1940s. Of course, this would have predominantly been heard on Radio Zulu at the time.
2: Come
0: By Puzu Over the years, Maskandi music became a platform through which South Africans and migrants shared their feelings of exploitation during South Africa's unjust political history of segregation and grievances of then-working conditions. While Maskandi music is an art form, its significance in society is beyond music and it's undoubtedly part of South Africa's popular culture. Another standout artist from Gallo Music's traditional music imprints is Dr. Thomas Chaoke, a Jitsonga musician who would have been played exclusively on radio Toyando. Chauke migrated from Venda to Alexander Township as a child, where he stayed with his uncle who exposed him to Mbarganga and taught him how to play dzonga guitar. Let's listen to Dr. Thomas Chaoke. Chauke It wasn't just these so-called neo-traditional artists who were played on Radio Bantu. The 70s and 80s gave birth to a wealth of vernacular language and instrumental soul. A prime example of this was Jacob Mparanyana Radebe, who remains one of the most powerful voices of Township Soul. Let's listen to his Sisutu cover of Percy Sledge's Take Time to Know Her, N'kanako Omotzeba.
3: mo na musadi kineki ri kiyamo raja ine ili tozo hle teo kinen gidoka empa une ale mobi kineki satzi hebi hai sinya si sam
0: It's no surprise that Percy Sledge was massive among local audiences. And despite the cultural boycotts, he toured South Africa and Angola in 1970.
5: Right now, we would like to do a very beautiful song that you made so great for me here in South Africa.
1: And I dig you the most for that.
5: I
2: found a woman. I felt She was everything. i ever been dreaming
0: of. Sledge was initially only given a permit to perform to black, colored, and Indian audiences until the tour became so popular that he was then allowed to perform for white audiences. Gallo had the license to release all his album recordings through Atlantic Record Label.
2: I took her home to Mama Mama
5: wanted to see my future bride Oh, she looked at us both. And then she called me to her side She said, son, take time
0: Let's meet prolific South African radio
4: veteran, Shadow Twala. My name is Shadow Twala. And I guess we're talking now because of the work I've done over 35 years of broadcasting with a specific interest in uh, South African music, but also music from the continent. And um, there's a leaning towards what is called jazz. And, And that's another big question. Do we have South African jazz or don't we, you know? And where does it begin and where does it end? I mean, how how do you separate all these genres? Despite
0: the state attempts to segregate music along ethnic and linguistic lines, music has always been dynamic and changing. And the evolution of Mbalqanga and jazz clearly demonstrates the way folks from around the country came together in the urban centers to develop new sounds.
4: Also, genres were, were there to divide and rule, you know. And I think the genre idea really worked for that government because they could compartmentalize again that, okay, this radio station plays Mbatanga because Mbatanga is like clean music. So there was a lot of traditional cultural music that belongs to the Tswanas that belongs to the... But, but it, it it kind of gave you the mood of what was going on in those areas that they had compartmentalized, which brings us to what influenced and gave birth to jazz as well, because those are the people that were kind of thrown in, uh, in Soweto, especially in, in, in urban areas. The music started permeating each culture and producing this new sound, which eventually was called jazz. This music became a melting pot then for a new sound, a new kind of... Maybe elitist sound, which, which became South African or township jazz, as they call it. There were restrictions also for the, for the black radio stations that used uh, African languages. They were also watched as far as their playlists. So for a long time, Radio Zulu would have never played R&B or, or, or anything else outside the Stratamiya and
0: what was supposed to be Zulu, you know. Whilst much of South Africa's music identity is known for its jazz musicians who gained prominence in exile, much of this music was actually banned on local radio stations, either for its linguistic positions or political content. Ex-Gallo MD, Iva Harbiger. The SABC were the main carriers of music. And if you
2: didn't get it on SABC, you had very little chance to try and make that happen. So there were lots of bannings, you know, but Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, the, the soundtrack album, you know, to try and get that passed. Somebody said to me the other day, I remember when you were working on JC Superstar and we were scared
5: to buy it because we thought we might get arrested or whatever.
2: But uh, eventually we got that through. But there were huge complications with JC Superstar.
5: Another one that we had was Harari did a song called Set Me Free. And I think it was banned for a bit, but eventually it got through. Let's hear from Sipo
0: Hotsticks Mabuse, the drummer of the black consciousness-inspired band Harari, about the banning of their song Set Me Free.
2: I did a song called Set Me Free. And then I knew what I was saying, set me free, please let me be. It's like a love song. The lyrics would dictate or determine whether was this political or not. So we wouldn't l- use lyrics like guns and shoot and, you know, we were not as overt politically as we could have. We would always be circumspect, using certain words that people would actually respond and understand this, the meaning thereof. But at that time we understood what the word free would have meant. When you said set me free, yes, mm-hmm. we wanted our freedom at that time. It was a love song, but it was a college statement. We would write songs along the understanding that the meaning is intended to ignite the interest in the political atmosphere at that time. Set me free.
0: That was Set Me Free by Harari, which was previously banned by the SABC.
2: I mean, we should remember at that time the SABC was the only existing medium of disseminating information. So if the SABC felt that the music was not desirable, they would immediately just ban it. They would scratch it off and literally scratching with a nail. So record companies also had a situation which would be dictated to by what the SABC considered the only kind of music you could bring to us. Politics were not part of what influenced how the record company operated. You know, they were essentially a business and uh, there was no straddling where it could be decided okay this time if an album is going to be political it would still be released. No. For them it was important that those who were signed to the record label remain within the structures of how the record company would sell the music. Yes, Peter Gallo was open minded.
0: Peter Gallo, the son of Eric Gallo.
2: Whether we could use that as being progressive is another story. My name is Sipo Hot Sticks Mabuse, as I'm known in the music industry. Um, I started my music career about 54 years ago. And uh, Gallo as a record company has become part of who I am. Most of the music that I made, I made through Gallo, even when I started with my
0: band. Hotsticks' musical journey began with the psychedelic rock and funk band, The Beaters. After their tour to Rhodesia, current-day Zimbabwe, the beaters changed their name to Harari.
2: When we went to Zimbabwe, there was a band from Congo, Brazzaville, that called OK Success. And there was an uh, Olivam Tukuzi, band. I mean, this was new music to us because we never, never even heard it here at home. That became the influence of the music that we wanted to make as a black, consciously-driven band.
0: Afterwards, Zimbabwe's beloved and hugely prolific Olavam Dukudzi signed to sheer sound, which eventually got absorbed by Gallo music. Let's give him a listen. (laughs) Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our media sponsors Sowetan and Sowetan Live The Sowetan is a proudly South African news lifestyle and entertainment publication that dates back to the early 80s with its roots as a liberation struggle newspaper It is still one of Mzanzi's most influential platforms of trusted journalism with over 3 million unique readers a month promoting social activism and celebrating excellence. Pick up a copy daily at your nearest newspaper outlet nationwide or log on to Sowetan Live and be a part of the rhythm of the nation. Gallo Vault Sessions. Let's get back to the podcast. You're listening to Gallo Vault Sessions, a podcast in collaboration with Gonjo. So far, we've heard about the ways the SABC mandated a distinct, apolitical, and necessarily ethnicized sound for black musicians who wanted their music to air on radio. But let's hear from Hot Sticks what it was like to operate almost in reaction to the SABC and the retribalization project it promoted.
2: The SABC operated on the basis of an apartheid system. And as a result, that would have influenced how we also Determined or decided to make music differently. And perhaps, in a way, with hindsight, it was helpful for us to reconsider how we approach our music in terms of okay, the SABC would not listen to a black rock and roll band, you know, because it was undesirable for African musicians to be influenced by English unless we become bad influencers of language within the radio stations. We don't know if we had sung in Afrikaans, probably they would have loved the music we made, but we were determined not to to be influenced by anything else either than what we felt was the right music to make. Certainly for us as a so-called black rock band, we were we were monitored sternly because most of the music would have been Mascanda, Umbarkanga, and uh, you know, a cappella like Lady Smith, Black Miss Tatamiya and so So that kind of music they were rather more comfortable with it. But certainly with the 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 music that Harari or Sipa Mabuse would be making it was always monitored. We were more influenced by what we heard on Alam Radio and most of the music that we heard were the Rolling Stones, the Beatles you know um, soul music which today is referred to as R&B Stevie Wonder, Otis reading. and uh, LM Radio came from Mozambique, but it it was very popular in South Africa. It was it was allowed to you know to operate because most of the music it was more a white radio station, uh, an independent white radio station, and uh, for us listening to LM Radio was perhaps full language, you know, where we felt English was the language that we wanted to pursue. We considered ourselves the elite of the South African music industry at the time.
0: LM Radio, Lorenzo Marquez, was a mostly independent radio station that broadcast out of Mozambique and provided an opportunity for folks in the region to listen to music that fell outside of the SABC mandate within apartheid South Africa.
4: LM Radio opened up my ears to a different kind of sound that was not South African. So they played a lot of Jimi Hendrix, Rare Earth, you know, white hippie music sometimes you may call it, you know. They, they played a lot of American stuff, but also music that was Mozambican and Portuguese and Golan, you know, those kinds of things. They would have played a Miram Makeba. They would have played a Huma because they didn't have the same kind of restrictions we had. So now and again, you'd hear some South African music. But predominantly American, really funky stuff. I went to school in Swaziland, so that's all we listened to, LM radio. And some South Africans, depending on how close to the border you lived, could get it. That's what kept me alive as far as radio is concerned.
0: Whilst it's easy to dismiss Radio Bantu as merely a consequence of the apartheid project, in contrast to the more funky independent stations coming out of Mozambique, it's important that we do not flatten the significance and subtle subversions present in the Radio Bantu system and how it provided a lifeline of a different sort. Last episode, we met Dr. Sipo Sitole, anthropologist and ex-deputy MD of Gallo, Africa. After his time at Gallo, Sipo was the head of strategy at the SABC from 2007 to 2010. Let's hear his thoughts on Radio Bantu.
5: I can't talk about the the evolution of radio. Um, I can talk about my radio, which is Radio Bantu, because I'm Zulu. That's all I grew up listening to. It was still Radio Bantu. This is where I got my own acculturation, because the African-language stations, which play a very critical role in this country. So we grew up when uh, radio drama was huge, because there was no television. We would sit next to the, the, the wireless, we always called the wireless, because it was wireless, and it was called wireless. Yeah, we would sit next to the wireless and listen to these stories, this radio drama. And when you are a kid, you even get so scared, you don't want to sleep, because some of these radio dramas are so scary. But there, we also learned the cultural narratives, and the music was so us at that time, the on-air presenters, most of them, also wrote the same radio dramas that we would listen to. So they were not just on-air presenters, but they were also skilled writers. Some of the biggest radio dramas that you hear uh, that were written in the 60s and 70s, 80s, were written by the same on-air presenters. But what was also nice about the, the stations that we listened to then is that the public service announcement, PSA, was the most important thing. We'll be listening to Radio Bantu, and then they will say, a family in Nongoma is looking for so-and-so who came to Durban two years ago and has since not returned home, something has happened at home and is required to return home urgently. It means there is a death in the family. You know, you will hear those things on radio. That is the radio that I know. The radio that was centered in the middle of the community, in the middle of the people. But it was also interesting back then when, when we had the newsreaders because they were sanctioned what they are going to read. They will say, here are the news coming from Pretoria, and I've been asked to read them as they are. That that was the introduction. Here are the news straight from Pretoria, I've been asked to read them as they are, scripted by the apartheid regime. Even if the apartheid had not started, I'm sure black people would have started their own radio stations at some point in time. That speak to them. Except that they would control the program. They would control the narrative. It's about what they do when they are there. They were able to, just them by saying, here are the news straight from Pretoria, uh, and I've been asked to read them as they are. They were basically saying to you, don't believe the hype, what I'm reading here is what I've been told. It's not necessarily what I believe in. (laughs) That's what they said, basically. But where we then rescued our culture within the same station was radio drama, because we wrote our own radio drama. Of course, there would not be a story about politics, of course but there will be a story about everything that has got to do with the social system. You know, the compilers are so important in the cultural formation of this country. We've seen the evolution of radio. I mean, if you talk about, for instance, uh, Radio Metro, as it used to be called back then, Treasure treasure Shabalala, you know, those are the oldies who really, really uh, understood the, the audiences and gained so much respect from their audiences and stuff.
0: The SABC maintained a state monopoly on radio until the eventual launch of independent talk radio in 1979. In the 1980s, the SABC reached some limited understanding that the so-called native is nuanced and diverse and cannot simply be categorized into distinct ethnic groups. In fact, the unintended outcome of labor migration, the mines and the development of black townships like Soweto was the emergence of ongoing development and varied black urban cultural identity that spanned and transcended the segregation of language and ethnic grouping. For many of us, to live in the metropole is to switch between language, ethnic and class positions. It is against this backdrop that the SABC launches Radio Metro, with Shadow Twala as one of their first presenters, alongside Treasure Shabalala.
4: My entrance into radio was by fluke. I've always been known to love good music. And they called to say, would you like to try? I went and tried. My mother was very upset because she thought it was a dead-end job. When we started our radio station, Radio Metro at the time, was the first black radio station to broadcast in English for the urban black. I mean, they went as far as making sure that each language was catered for because of the messages they wanted us to to absorb and conform to. And as you may understand, they made it slightly elitist because assumed that everybody or anyone who spoke English would be the elite of the urban spaces. But it quickly spread to whatever you can, (laughs) however you can speak and how you can express yourself, you know. I think it was a government experiment of sorts you know, our budgets were terrible because we made a lot of money but it it kind of went to the white radio stations etc we were very guarded as far as what we spoke about and what we played especially because there was all this music that, because they had a huge library but you'd find the album you wanted but with kind of a scratch each record was scratched for songs that were illegal to play and we we could sneak in our own but they recorded everything that went on air and there'd be a debrief after your show to listen with the big bosses to say you know what is it that you played um or what, what do these lyrics mean? And we weren't allowed to even use an African language in case you were starting to influence you know, in a particular way. So it was very strict. We managed though, I think, to sneak in one or two things, especially towards the late 80s, early 90s, because it was evident that the country is changing in a particular way. The first few years at Metro, even though they were strict with us, The people that started the station did not know what to expect. So we almost had to teach them what our people like listening to. So I could go and compile, I could go to all the record companies and get music that I preferred and that would be my show. We played a lot of American music, mainly, and when we did play South African music, it was the chosen music that the library would allow you to play, you know. So at the beginning, I don't think we could play the, the Sipo sticks Mabuses because they were there. Also, the instrumental music was amazing because that gave us almost license to play where there were no lyrics, you know. So now and again, you hear Abdullah Ibrahim, Mercy Pagella, and all those, the rapieries and Stimela were, were popular, Sakile, you know. Let's listen to 80s bubblegum pop star
0: Mercy Pagella with her hit written by Gallo composer Chico Twala.
4: There was no total freedom until 1990 when we knew that Mandela was coming out and the, the, the kind of music, it just opened up a whole new vocabulary as far as music was concerned and and rightly so because we were now in a celebratory mood and there were things we could openly talk about. Albeit in a very kind of packaged way. In the
0: nineties, South Africa began to transition politically, and of course this seeped into radio. Much of Radio Bantu became stereo and was promoted to FM Radio. Radio Zulu became Ukozi FM. Radio Tosa became Unclobo Wenene. Radio Toyondo merged with Radio Venda and became Pala Pala FM. And of course, Radio Metro developed to Metro FM. Even LM Radio, which was eventually bought by the SABC before it shut down under Mozambique's Frilimo Army, was replaced in South Africa by Radio 5, later known as 5FM. Despite this rebrand, the legacy and complexities of Radio Bantu have endured well into SABC programming in present-day South Africa. I
5: would be the first person that will be so sad if African language stations were to be done with. When I was at SAPC, there was that talk. You can't kill your own, car, your own language. If you are saying you're going to get rid of African language stations, who's going to speak Zulu and Kosa and Sutu and Sitsuana and Zipedi and, and hear the cultural nuances, the tradition, the language in its, pure, in, in its purity, and the music that speaks to that? The issue is. Is editorial control, but it's also about speaking to the issues that affect the community and our society. It's about programming. But does it mean that you should not play a Thomas Chaoke song on, on Uko's FM? No. Every radio station should be a, a, a reservoir for African culture. That I can actually, if I was listening to, to Uko's FM, I would be introduced to a Sibedi artist. I may not understand what they say, but I can understand, I can hear the sound that this sound is from this particular ethnic group, you know. You might have Ukos FM, but maybe 50% of that could be what being Z- 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 Zulu is about, and the rest should then incorporate from the continent, from, this, from the country, in such a way that you are able to, to learn more about other cultures. I think radio has been juniorized; that the, the, the whole cultural um, element has been removed from, from radio, I'll listen to on-air presenters, whether it's on Metro or even, Uko's my own station. You'll hear they want to talk more about what they know beyond having done last night in New York. But they will never talk to you and tell you that, uh, oh, by the way, um, Turutima Suga was throwing a party at her apartment last night and there was a lot of people attending that. They'll tell you about what Kanye West was doing. And they want to be seen to be knowing the best songs that come from America than the best song that comes from South Africa.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gallo Vault Sessions, a new podcast series brought to you by Gallo Music in collaboration with Gonjo. We hope you have enjoyed learning about the SABC's Radio Bantu and the impact of separate development in South Africa's radio and by extension, music label history. In next month's episode of the podcast, we'll explore parts of Gallo Music's Afrikaans language catalog and the conscious formation of whiteness and Afrikaner culture through music in South Africa. Today's episode was researched, produced, and written by Zara Julius at Gonjo with production support from The Good People and narration by Kaneta Kanuti. Our theme music is the song Doi Doi by Marumo and you're listening to Kansas City by The Movers. Special thanks to Shadow Twala, Sipo Hotsticks Mabuse, Sipo Sitole, Rob Allingham, Antostella, Bra Mike Swaratle, and Iva Harberger. Be sure to listen to this month's curated mix by Vusi Llatwayo from Fly Machine Sessions, exploring the sound of Radio Bantu. You can find a link to that in the show notes and the Gonjo Mix Cloud. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Gallo Vault Sessions, a collaboration with Gonjo with new episodes and curated mixes monthly.